You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA Today. This conversation today is happening on Monday, July 3rd, with this being a week that features the 4th of July holiday. This show will be taking Tuesday, Independence Day, off, and we'll be repeating the conversations we have today. Coming up in those conversations, we're going to talk markets here with Darren Newsom, Senior Analyst at Bar Chart. Then in segment two, we're going to check in with John Baranek on DTN Weather. Believe it or not, following that acreage report, we are still concerned about what could come from a weather perspective. And in segment three, Jackie Fack, the associate editor at AgriPulse, is going to join us with a look at the changing regulatory events for cell-cultured meat. And finally, we're going to end today talking carbon storage and sequestration with Joe Heinrich, the executive director of the Smart Carbon Network. Before we get into all of that, however, this is a holiday-shortened trading week, and the USDA gave the trade uh, a little extra information to digest <laughs> this week. Joining us now to break it down is Darren Newsom, Senior Analyst over at Bar Chart. And Darren, there's a lot happening in the commodity markets here today, isn't there? Uh, there certainly is, Mike, and and you know I, uh, you probably heard me chuckle a little bit when you said information. I'm never sure if you know USDA provides information or entertainment. I'm I'm really not. It's really hard to draw the line. Uh, but if we go back to last Friday, basically what we're still seeing uh, is some is some carryover from that. Uh, you know, obviously the big numbers were the acreage updates uh, with uh, with corn going up. What was it? Uh, corn increased what 2.1 million. Yeah, uh, from uh, from prospective plantings and, and soybeans were down four million from uh, from both last year and prospective planting. So, yeah, caught the market a little bit off guard, particularly that soybean number. It did, Darren. It, it definitely caught me off guard. You can put me in that basket of of analysts who were surprised to see such a huge print on corn acreage, and I, I think importantly, such a small print on soybeans. You talk to growers across the country. Does that eighty three and a half million acres of beans make sense given the economic story that beans have had for the past year? Yeah, you know, setting aside the conversations, if we look at what the market has been telling us. I don't know that it actually fits because, you know, from September, if, if we look at a weekly close only study between December corn and November soybeans from the first week of September through the last week of February, we saw that December corn was trying to buy uh, acres away from soybeans. So we knew that, you know, because of that ratio spread, that corn had done its job. And so when U.S., you know, if we go back to the end of February, and we compare what that six months had been, you know, the closest fit, and again, I don't believe in analogous years, but the closest fit was 2016 when corn acres increased by 7% from the previous year, but soybeans went up 1%. So we didn't see the huge drop off in 2016 of soybean acres, uh, even though corn did its job back then. So now we fast forward to the end of March and USDA just increases uh, from the previous year, uh, it would increase what in in its prospective plantings? What 2.4, me, 3.4 million acres, and then we increase another 2.1. So now we're sitting six percent above where we were last year, reportedly. That's pretty much in line with what we should have been expecting at the end of March. 
but the number so i mean the corn the corn acreage number shouldn't have surprised anybody that was you know that's exactly what the market said was most likely happening over the course of the fall and the winter but it's that soybean acre number dropping 4 million from last month excuse me from from uh, last year and, and all the other pre reports that we've seen I don't know that that actually happened. I would be very surprised if the U.S. only planted 83 and a half million acres of soybeans. It just our, 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 our forward is the forward curve in soybeans bullish. Yes, but it has been for a long time. I don't know that it's that bullish. We're not that inverted in the future spreads. We're not that concerned about, you know, tight supply and demand. And if we did only plant 83, if the U.S. did only plant 83 and a half million acres, four million acres less than last year, uh what it tells me is we don't have any demand even though we're talking about increased domestic crush for demand for bean oil possibly for bean meal due to the the small crop in argentina it's telling me we aren't going to export anything we're not expected to export anything and crush demand may be overstated uh the fact of you know the, the way the future spreads are lined up at this point so, Darren, with that demand concern still on the horizon, in fact, probably intensifying now that we've seen a 70 cent rally mm -hmm. here in the nearby bean futures, where does the market go from here? We've got that November uh, soybean getting close or at least maybe taking a taking aim at Fourteen dollars is that where we go from here, Darren, for the next uh, the next level of resistance? Yeah, it's it's interesting because what we're seeing on the long term Nov bean chart, uh, if we look at the continuous Nov bean chart, uh, which just takes the November contract. Hey, Darren, I think we lost you there. Lost maybe the signal. Can you hear me, Darren Newsom? Are are we there again? We are back, Darren. You were talking okay. about the beans there. Yeah, what we saw in the long-term monthly chart, continuous monthly chart, was a bullish two-month reversal. So that would indicate that at least at face value, it seems like the long-term trends turned up. This morning we went to overnight through Monday morning, we went to a new four-month high. But what's what we have to keep in mind is that this is still a weather market. And we saw the same thing in December corn early in June, and then it collapsed. Once the weather market goes away, it's kind of an asterisk on these on these technicals that we're seeing. So I think we have to take it with a bit of grain of salt here. We have to be pretty careful with it. Yes, it's trying to tell us the long-term trend has turned up, that it's much more bullish than it was. But we have to keep in mind, this is a weather market, and they usually last about six weeks. And oddly enough, this is week six of a six-week move. With that being the case, Darren, are you looking at hedging some risk with options this week? Do you want to see how the trade resumes when we get back from the 4th of July break? What's your strategy for growers? You know, we're up close to 14 on, on, the, on the 23 contract, and, and we're well above 12 on, on the 24 contract. And I had this question asked me this morning. I wouldn't mind putting a little bit on the books. I mean, the weather looks like it's going to turn more favorable, and, and that 83 and a half million acres might be the lowest number we see all year. Uh, so there's a chance that this is the opportunity, if you haven't made sales, to get some. I wouldn't do it all, but I'd get some on the books because these are pretty good price levels. So I think this is giving us an opportunity to get some uh, get some summer sales on the books. Darren, we have not talked very much about the quarterly grain stocks report also released on Friday mm -hmm. from the USDA, largely in, within line with the uh, trade expectations. Was there anything on there that didn't jive with what you've been watching versus the spreads in the in the trade? Yeah, trade, you know, trade expectations are what they are. It's just everybody playing pin the tail on the donkey. But what jumped out to me was, you know, I've been talking about how available stocks use have been tight. And it seems like that was pretty close to accurate. 
uh, this was based on the cash market because we saw off-farm stocks, 46% of the total. Now, if we go back to last June, the last June one figure, it was 51%. The June before that, 58% and so on. So this was a lower than what we've seen June 1% off farm. So we know that the off farm stocks were were it's you know were a smaller percent than what we're used to dealing with. So this means it was a bit tighter. What happened though, we just didn't have the demand. We saw demand start slowing down towards the end of Q3. So it, it, in the end, really didn't make that much difference. I just found it was an interesting split this time. It is interesting. These markets make farmers behave in interesting ways. Folks, we've been talking with Darren Newsom, Senior Analyst at Marchart. When we return, we'll dig into the weather with John Baranek of DTN. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. This is Jesse Allen, Farmer Ranch Director for the American Ag Network. Listeners know they can depend on their favorite radio station for the latest news, weather, markets, community events, and more. In fact, AM radio is the backbone of America with 80 million people tuning in each month to listen. And in an emergency, radio is there to help keep you safe in dangerous situations. Why do you listen? Go to whyilisten.com and tell us why, and you will have a chance to win $500. Visit whyilisten.com today. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. At YMCA Summer Camp, kids find their why. Friendship and fun, a world of adventure beneath a golden sun. Running, laughing, full of wonder, being themselves is second nature. Summer Camp is where they begin to unlock the confidence that lies within. When kids find new passions, they find their why. Summer Camp season starts soon. Learn more at ymca.org for a better us. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations 
solutions to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and as we heard from Darren Newsom there in segment one, the weather is still in the market's eye. Following that big acreage report, we're still seeing traders grapple with the impact of dry weather so far this year. Well, last week saw some excitement return to the weather world, beginning, well, with that derecho that moved across Iowa, Illinois, parts of Missouri, and Indiana. Since then, at least in the northern part of the Midwest, we've seen more rain. John Baranek, meteorologist with DTN Weather, joins us now. And John, I'm wondering, is that rain forecast going to continue? It will. So you know, uh, we do have another front that is moving through the uh, northern plains into Minnesota today. Uh, and we'll see that kind of really sweep its way through much of the Corn Belt and into the south here this week. Uh, we should be looking at some pretty good showers and thunderstorms right along that front. At least it's forecast to be that way. So uh, we should see some uh, again some good some good rainfall in a lot of, of the uh, a lot of the country here over the next few days and that's not the only thing to talk about we do have uh, another system that looks like it'll be moving through right through the almost the entirety of the corn belt Friday through the weekend maybe even into early next week so we've got uh, multiple rain chances uh, on the docket here uh, for the, for the corn belt and really those areas that need it the most John, it definitely sounds or it feels as though a switch has been flipped. We went months and months with no rain at all for so many folks here across the country. Past five days have seen more chances of it. And is this indicative of an overall system switch? Are we seeing a fundamental pattern change this time of year? Well, compared to where we had been with that that uh, the drier weather, yes. Uh, but how long it lasts is still a question mark. You know, we've talked a bit about uh, before about how models are just not done a very good job of um, uh, of getting the pattern right until we get to about a week or maybe 10 days ahead in the future. Uh, so it's it's really hard to say if the, the pattern we're seeing here over the next 10 days will be able to be continued through the end of July and into August. Um, history would tend to suggest that uh, as we go from La Nina into El Nino that we would expect a more kind of active pattern uh, through this time period. But models do have some... Um, uh, discrepancy in that they, they kind of tend to, to uh, have a little bit more drier conditions, at least for the Western half of the corn belt here for the second half of July, whether or not that actually pans out or not um, remains to be seen. But uh, there are going to be some winners and losers out of all of this. Um, we, we've seen recently that the Southern half of the corn belt has definitely been on the winning side uh, while the Northern half kind of uh, Missed out on a little bit of that. The Dakotas through through Wisconsin hasn't seen as much uh, as farther south. We you know we're we're getting some good rains this week, but we're, we need it to continue because we don't have a whole lot of soil moisture built up in the soil. So, um, but it's going to be definitely um, on everybody's radar, so to speak. Pardon the pun uh, about that. Um, just because we just 
we have to we have to keep continuing to see this rainfall to ha- to uh, continue to at least have the potential for some good yields here this year. That's a great point. The the low soil moisture content means there's very little margin for error if these rainfall events don't materialize. But John, given the fact that we have seen more active systems here over the, the large parts of the Corn Belt in the past week or so, are you expecting to see some improvement on the drought monitor this week? That's a great question. I mean, we have, uh, you know, for weeks and weeks, it's been degradation, degradation right over the heart of the Corn Belt. Um, in that area, uh, is the the area that saw the best rainfall over this last week. We saw large areas from southeast Nebraska all the way into Kentucky and into Tennessee with over two inches of rain. And that's a good two and sometimes three weeks worth of rainfall in some of these areas. So I would expect to see some improvement, but um, large scale reductions in the drought is probably not going to happen. We just we need to continue to see it. Um, one week isn't gonna isn't gonna do it. So uh, I mean, we, we've got a good week of, of rainfall again here this week. Uh, we'll see if it pans out for next week as well. And hopefully we'll continue to eat away at it. But I think that's just going to have to be what we do this year um, is just kind of eat away at it bit by bit. And hopefully we don't grow it in any, any other sections either. Eat away at it bit by bit. John, that's a great way to think about drought that sets in this early. And now we just need that regular rainfall just to keep up with growth perspectives in the corn. John Baranek, meteorologist with DTN Weather. We want to make sure you take a little break, give that voice a rest <laughs> ahead of the 4th of July holiday. But John, thank you so much for joining us today, filling us in on these important topics, especially in a year like 2023. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Have a, have a good 4th. Same to you, John. Appreciate you joining us here. And folks, with John taking a step away, we do have time to update a few other headlines that have been really growing in the world of agriculture. We've talked for some time about the challenges brewing in the labor markets here in the U.S. We've seen shortages of transportation workers on the trucking side, on the railroad side, and even on the port side here in the United States. We've had our own port worker struggles working to to keep those longshore men and women working in their jobs at the port, uh, despite the, well, recently challenging supply chain chain disruptions. On the U.S. side, West Coast port workers currently have a deal. They've been able to negotiate that. We heard from U.S. Meat Export Federation uh, Dan Halstrom here several weeks ago about the concerns U.S. industry had for West Coast ports. On the U.S. side, a lot of those have been alleviated, or at least they're making progress towards getting those uh, port backups uh, alleviated. However, north of the border in Canada, those labor woes are just getting started. Late last week, 99% of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union Canada, these are the dock workers there up and down both ports in Canada, announced that they are authorizing a strike. They made this announcement late last week. They gave a 72-hour notice, and the strike did start officially on July 1st up in Canada. 99% of the unions have voted in support of this strike. They have been working without a contract since the end of March of this year. Remember, U.S. workers ran about two years without a contract. So sometimes these negotiations can take a little while to get approved. And it's worth noting that the uh, Rob Ashton, who is the union president up there in Canada, said, quote, the ILWU, Canada Longshore Division, has not taken this decision lightly. But for the future of our workforce, we had to take this step. We are still hopeful a settlement will be reached through free collective bargaining. 
This contract negotiation has been open since February. The British Columbia Maritime Employers Association, that's the group representing the port owners in these debuts, uh, disputes, says they are ready to continue working on a contract. And we don't know how long the strike is going to go. It is moving ahead as we speak right now. There are concerns for, from economists that the strike could lead to backup and congestion in the ports on Canada as these longshoremen won't be there to unload the shipments. We'll continue to keep track of it. Of course, so we do see Canada playing a large part in the role of ag exports. And just like in the United States, this is the time of year they need to keep those boats full and moving before that cold winter sets in. We've also spoken a couple of times on the program about the changes to the waters of the U.S. rule, the back and forth that have happened on that rulemaking since 2008 supposedly came to an end earlier this year. The Supreme Court ruled on a case called Sackett versus the EPA. The question was, what counts as a water of the United States? Which of these bodies of water in America are approved under the Clean Water Act to be regulated by the EPA? And there had long been a confusing definition about what qualified as a water of the U.S. In the Sackett decision from back in May of this year, excuse me, back in March of this year, the Supreme Court ruled that a navigable water of the U.S., or that a water of the U.S., rather, is a wetland connected via the surface to a navigable water of the United States. Think one of those big rivers that we've got locks and dams on to get ships up and down. What this rule does is streamline the process for determining which land, which real estate is subject to EPA approval. And this decision from the Supreme Court in Sackett runs counter to the most recent Waters of the U.S. rule issued by the Biden administration back in December. Under this new Waters of the U.S. rule, that old administration rule doesn't fly. It doesn't comply with the limits set up by the justices. The Biden administration came out here about a week or two ago. The EPA said they will be working right away to remedy their rule, and they hope to have a new one out by September 1st. Well, obviously, an issue like water of the U.S. impacts a lot of different industry groups, and many of them push back, saying, no, the EPA has known for quite some time that this decision had a potential to not go in the EPA's way. They should have been prepared for this decision to go against them, and they need to issue a new, clear WOTUS rule as soon as possible. One of the groups that joined in on this lawsuit is the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. They jumped in and asked a federal judge to strike down the Biden administration's WOTUS rule the one that was issued back in December, on the grounds that it is not in compliance with the court's decision in Sackett versus the EPA. Now, this motion was filed in Texas, and the NCBA's legal counsel adds that SCOTUS ruled unanimously, and the EPA has overstepped, and they are demanding restitution as soon as possible. Folks, when AOA returns, we'll bring you up to speed on the policies surrounding both plant meat and cell-cultured meat with Jackie Fatka, an associate editor at AgriPulse. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. 
Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. There are a ton of social networking websites, but one stands apart for a very special reason. This one saves lives. It's MatchingDonors.com. MatchingDonors.com links organ donors with people in need of kidney and other transplants. In the U.S., 22 people die each day waiting for an organ transplant, most of them for kidneys. If you've ever considered becoming a living organ donor, or if you're someone in need of an organ transplant, visit MatchingDonors.com, home of the greatest gift of all, the gift of life. MatchingDonors.com. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look at this market trade here on this Monday, July 3rd, it's a bit of an interesting trading day in that we're just coming off the weekend, and tomorrow the markets will be closed for the 4th of July holiday. We're in a little bit of a no-man's land. Could be a low-volume type of day here today with many traders probably out for the 4th of July holiday and just taking in a long weekend. Now, we have seen in the overnight trade a sharp move higher in beans, bean meal, and bean oil after we got that lower than expected acreage number on Friday from the USDA. However, we've already come well off of our highs here in this soy complex and meal and oil here today. Still trading up sharply, but we've backed well off of those highs, maybe taking some profit. Spot July got up over $16 in the overnight trade. Corn is up just a little bit here in our early action on this Monday, while the wheat trade is mixed with Kansas City hard red winter wheat showing some good strength here on the day with some double-digit gains there. Really, corn is uh, three to five higher for the most part. Spot July is up a little bit further. Beans uh, right now anywhere from about 15 to 25 cents higher. While the wheat trade, I mentioned KC wheat, 19 to 20 cents higher. Spring wheat anywhere from about 9 to 15 cents higher. And Chicago wheat just up a couple of cents here. Meantime, cattle futures are trading moderately lower. Feeder cattle may be seeing a bit of a uh, pullback, a bit of a correction, some selling pressure there as we had a huge run-up on Friday with corn taking a tumble. Meantime, live cattle down just moderately. Probably going to be at least Wednesday or later before we see any cash cattle activity. Meantime, hogs trading moderately higher with the front months up triple digits. Crude oil down slightly. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network with a check of the markets. I'm Jesse Allen. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. 
Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues here on this holiday shortened work week. At least it's a holiday shortened work week if you're working in an office. We recognize a lot of folks in agriculture are out there 365 days a year, and folks, we salute you. Now, there is a bit of a break happening in Washington, D.C. this week. A lot of legislators are back home, regulators perhaps enjoying a four day weekend, but there have been a lot of changes with regard to meat, both plant-based and cell-cultured meat, and I figured it was time to check in, get an overview of the situation with Jackie Fatka. She's an associate editor with AgriPulse. She is on that beat of that intersection between food and policy. Jackie, thanks so much for joining us today. Great chatting with you, Mike. As we think about getting into talking about meat, Jackie, I'm excited to talk to you about what's coming in the cell-cultured meat category. But before we do, plant-based meat seemed to drive a lot of headlines this last year. I understand there's been some recent research. Are they still as popular with consumers? You know, after 2020, I think a lot of uh, there was a lot of hype and a lot of people who were trying some of these new plant based alternatives. And, you know, we, we they really had wanted to see that surge happen. And actually, in the last couple of years, we've we've seen a kind of scaling back of some of those plant based purchases. And so we had a lot of discussion of, you know, why that happened and whether that would continue. But and it also kind of opens it up that maybe the the approach for getting those consumers to to stay purchasers of plant-based uh, maybe wasn't the right strategy. Oh, interesting. They're saying that folks aren't uh, continuing to buy our product, but maybe it's just because we're not selling it correctly. Is that the idea? Well, I think part of it is, uh, you know, plant-based products um, have many different plants or, you know, pulses and peas. And, you know, in the agricultural sector, there's there's still products that that are consumed that are grown on the farm in these plants. But just because it's plant-based, it's not like a salad, right? So those plants that are making that that meat substitute um, have to, as they're trying to mimic the taste of meat, they have to add more salt or try to create a a, a flavor profile that can kind of trick a consumer, right? And so I think they've kind of realized that it, right now they do taste different. It's not that they taste bad, but they just taste different. And, you know, the approach has been to try to mimic. But if we're trying to mimic, we we might have to add a lot of salt or we might have to add a lot of oil, right, to get that juiciness that you might have if you're biting into a hamburger with good Iowa beef, says the Iowa farm girl. So, I mean, these are these are things that are not quite replicated. Now, consumers may like the taste of it. And so, you know, maybe it's time for these companies and, and this great report from Rob Obeck talked about this is, you know, maybe it's time for these companies to stop trying to mimic meat and just create a really healthy uh, alternative uh, because a lot of people are looking for different things within their palate. And so it doesn't have to taste the same, but it needs to be healthy. And as we add a lot of these things to try to mimic meat, the healthiness, as you compare them apples to apples, is is not really, consumers are starting to see through that, right? They, they realize that there's extra salt, there's extra oil to create that same taste profile that may still not meet that taste profile. That's a really interesting point, Jackie. And I would imagine if these plant-based meat creators could create a product that was none of the existing meats, they'd also sidestep a lot of those labeling issues that have popped up both on the plant-based side and I assume are coming on the cell-cultured side. 
Yes. And, you know, that's a lot of the discussion, too. And and, uh, you know, we've there's been a lot of lawsuits and a lot of states who have stepped in and, and tried to provide some uh, clarification on what you can call uh, meat or a sausage or, you know, there's there's many different uh, avenues of, of trying to get get through that. But, you know, at the end of the day, it, this this Rebel Bank report, and I talked to the author there, too, and it was really interesting. You know, a lot of times folks are demonized for for choosing regular meat. And so the the, the previous, I, I feel, you know, they used to really try to, to stack up side by side with meat. But, you know, some of these plant-based products can stand on their own. And so they don't necessarily need to go after meat. Uh, I think, you know, even just approaching it as a, a way to, to have a healthy alternative, uh, protein source, there's there's opportunities that maybe you don't have that head-on-head fight with the meat industry. That makes some sense, folks. That Robbo Research Report was called Alternatives for Plant-Based Meat Alternatives Back to the Drawing Board. You can check that out at the Robbo Research website. Jackie, you said something a few times in that conversation about the report that's got me wondering about the future, and that was that these companies are looking to mimic meat, and they're initially tried to do it with plant-based material. Now they're looking to mimic the flavor of meat with meat, but it's meat grown in a lab. Can you fill us in on some of the recent regulatory approvals for these cell-cultured meat products? Yeah. So just last week, uh, USDA approved for sale that you can now purchase, but there's not going to be any in grocery stores. But um, USDA gave its stamp of approval for two. The, the term is being a uh, preferred in the marketplace is cell cultivated meat. And so this is actually made from actual meat. They take a chunk of chicken breast, they put it in a a big steel tank and they add a whole bunch of amino acids and they essentially feed it so that it expands. Um, The technology is really kind of fascinating if you think about it. Um, And, and, you know, a lot of those futurist types uh, movies that we've seen over the years, but um, you know, the, the thought is that you wouldn't have to have as much of a um, environmental footprint. Um, it's, so there's some benefits that that people see on that side of things, but it's, it's actually meat, and so it's it's not uh, it's not it's not plant based. It is made from meat. It's fed things to increase it. So instead of having this whole uh, you know, your, your entire chicken that has all the different pieces of it, you've taken this and, and essentially you can make it into, uh, you know, chicken nuggets or, you know, different types of, uh, you know, makes this long, long patty that they do things with. So yes, USDA approved it. Um, it and there's a really unique, um, shared partnership of regulatory approval between FDA and USDA on the, on the cell cultivated meat as well. Yes, Jackie. And so this is where I wanted to get with you because it sounds as though we're going to see these products in the wild here before too long. You mentioned a couple of restaurants maybe in the near future with this cell culture chicken. But once we get beyond that, where where does it start to go? You know, I think right now it costs so much money to 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 feed those amino acids and to get it from that little chunk of an actual chicken breast, right? You know, it's, it's not very expensive. I can go to the grocery store and buy a pound of chicken breast for $2.99 a pound, right? Well, this is, we're talking thousands of dollars for a similar amount, right? So this is, this is not something right now that you're going to see in the grocery store, but if they can figure out a way to bring those costs down, 
then then the technology has more of an opportunity to be more wide stream. And, you know, I think that's one thing, too, if we I, I was just heard from another company last week that's looking at ways to significantly bring that overhead cost down on on how you replicate essentially and multiply this this one chunk of meat into your 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 bigger chunk <laughs> that, that they then to kind of chop up and, and serve. So yeah, there's restaurant, there's gonna be a restaurant in California in San Francisco and another one in Washington, DC that's going to uh, maybe start selling this. And so we'll see. We'll see whether consumers see this as something futuristic and that they want to spend their money on. Um, and then you know does that provide more incentive to to bring this down to the grocery store level and incentivize it in such a way if they can get the cost structure in, in such a way that it, it's able to be consumed by the masses. It is. In order to get it consumed by the masses, Jackie, it's got to get through that complicated regulatory structure. You mentioned that growth phase, of course, for the the product, the specimen, I suppose we can call it in the lab, has some oversight, and then it goes to processing. Talk to us about how that change happens. So yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, right now, um, we'll think about like how a livestock, a, a typical livestock system works, right? So FDA actually has control over feed ingredients in feed um, you know, additives that are put into your livestock feed. Well, the same thing with cultivated, cell cultivated meat. So FDA would have oversight of those amino acids and the, 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 that, that, that special process of trying to feed that piece of meat to get it to grow in a, in a big steel tank. So FDA has oversight over, over that. Now, USDA, if you also think about the livestock side of things, when a, a, a hog goes to to a slaughter plant, there are FS, there's uh, USDA inspectors there that would inspect the plant, make sure that it's safe. You've got to have it cold to keep things, uh, you know, from, you, you've got certain specifications that 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 plant inspector was going to do, and then they're going to make sure that that it's safe as it goes out the plant. Same thing after it comes through the, the steel tank and they're ready to process it. Uh, it, it goes over to USDA's oversight. So at a, at a plant that, you know, there's two different market, there's two different companies that have got products. Um, one of them is Upside Meats and the other one is Good Foods, if I remember, or Good Meat, sorry, um, that uh, both of them have these these facilities that actually have FDA and USDA inspectors jurisdiction on both of them as they kind of transition from start to finish. Uh, and so, yes, there's a shared regulatory responsibility. And that's why, you know, last week we had USDA saying, yes, this is safe to eat. We are now, you know, able to be on the plants, to the these processing facilities to, to make sure that it's safe as it goes out the door as well. All right. I don't think we're going to have any at anybody's 4th of July barbecue this year, but it sounds like those cultivated meat products could be on their way. We've been speaking with Jackie Fadka, Associate Editor at AgriPulse on that food and policy beat. Jackie, thanks so much for joining us today. Great talking with you. Thanks, Mike. Happy 4th of July. Folks, stick around. We'll have more AOA when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. 
This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Why do you listen? I listen to radio to stay up on news, weather, current events around the local community. It keeps me up to date with everything going on in the world. It kind of just takes my mind off of the drive, getting some relevant information that's in time. It's always nice to know what's going on. Okay, what can I do? Well, I'll listen to the what's coming up and you can plan your day. Why do you listen? Go to whyilisten.com, tell us why you listen, and you have a chance to win $500. Visit whyilisten.com today. Do you know how much one stock of wheat is worth? Well, you're about to find out. Wheat is a member of the grass family that produces a dry, one-seeded fruit commonly called a kernel. There are about 1 million kernels of wheat in a bushel, about 50 kernels per stock, which if we do the math is about 20,000 stocks of wheat per bushel. That means that if a bushel is worth $8, then each stock is worth about 0.04 cents. So, you would need 2,500 wheat stocks to equal $1. Now that one bushel of wheat will yield approximately 42 pounds of white flour or 60 pounds of whole wheat flour. A bushel of wheat makes about 42 pounds of pasta or 210 servings of spaghetti. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. And in the United States, one acre of harvested land yields an average of around 45 to 50 bushels of wheat. So if you ever wondered how much one stock of wheat was worth, now you know. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Put a frog in a pot of boiling water and it'll jump right out. 
but put a frog in a pot of cool water and slowly heat it up, that frog will boil. As a metaphor for us and all that we go through as veterans, it's a story that rings true. We learn to endure the heat in silence. We apply what we learn to life, the bills, the job, the family, things we're expected to handle with ease. When life heats up around us, we just try to stay afloat. We let the water boil. Reaching out isn't easy, but you've never been interested in easy. You join because you are not afraid of hard work. You are not a frog. If you or a veteran you know needs support, don't wait until the water boils. Reach out. Find resources at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and our next conversation is going to be about a topic we have heard a lot about over the past several years, carbon. The question is, how can agriculture capture some of this enthusiasm, and can we make a premium from these conversations? Well, the world is still growing, and joining us now is a man who might know an answer to that question. Joe Heinrich is the executive director for the Smart Carbon Network, and Joe joins us now. We appreciate you taking the time to talk with us, Joe. Well, I appreciate you having me on on your show this morning, Mike. I really do. I hope you're having a great week uh, with Fourth of July and everything going on. There certainly is a lot going on, Joe, and there's a lot going on on the ground as it relates to carbon. Smart Carbon Network, you are in the carbon capture and sequestration educational game, Joe. So I want to ask you to educate us first and foremost, what is carbon capture and sequestration? Well, carbon capture sequestration is uh, is a process that they pull the carbon off. Uh, it's turned into liquefied form and then is either used or stored in another location and and it enables the oh your ethanol plants or your electrical plants to become more carbon neutral and it's really the the most efficient and the best way to do it and as we look going forward especially in the ethanol industry uh you have several states already to me, uh that are going to require it being low carbon ethanol so it's it's a market that we're going to have to get into that we're already working to get into so, and Joe, it seems like these are conversations we've been having for a while. And and I'm a I'm a liberal arts guy. I work with my hands. I struggle sometimes with the science. So I just want to make sure I get what's happening here with carbon capture. We're making ethanol at these facilities as we're doing it. Of course, we're releasing some carbon dioxide into the air. With carbon capture, we're we're literally grabbing that carbon dioxide gas out of the air and then liquefying it and putting it in a pipe. Is that what's happening? Yes. Exactly. And, and it was, the pipe is the part of the transportation. So uh, what I really am trying to do, what Smart Carbon Network is really trying to do is look at the whole picture because the transportation is part of it, but we have to look at all the benefits that it, this whole carbon capture system brings to the Midwest. There's really been a lot of opportunity and, and in the future, there's even more opportunity for it. 
So Joe, let's talk about where that opportunity comes from. We've seen pipelines become of a bit of a flashpoint right now from a political perspective. But as you look out long term, what's the reason for, for sticking with this industry? What's the growth potential? Well, the first growth potential is what's already here. Uh, to keep that ethanol industry in place, that's the first thing we think of because a lot of ethanol plants are going to be tied to this. Uh, we're over in eastern Iowa. Our production is about 200 bushel an acre. We've seen studies come in that say uh, this could cost the corn market about 75 cents to a dollar a bushel. Uh, I always use 50 cents a bushel. I'm a conservative guy, but that's about $100 an acre. So for economic benefit for the producers, it, it's a big hit. Uh, when you look at the communities, how much it already is helping the communities, economic development, having ethanol and those things in the market uh, have really uh, you know, fold it over again and again, you know, multiply it as far as how it's helped the local communities. And one other thing I want to say real quick, Mike, is you're going to see where our reliable part of our electrical um, system is going to be required for low carbon also. So they're looking at this carbon capture technology. And so that affects not just agriculture, this affects all communities everywhere that we need that affordable, reliable, uh, and competitively priced electrical, uh, we're going to be looking at where this is going to be too. That is a really good point, Joe. We're seeing it right now with regard to ethanol plants capturing that premium, selling lower carbon ethanol into those states that offer those sorts of premiums. But yeah, realistically, long term as this goes on, we could see this type of technology on top of a natural gas power generating plant, correct? Yes. Correct. And one thing I want to bring up too before, I know we don't have much time, is the future of carbon and uh, the actual carbon and what can be used for. Because one of the things that got me really involved, I'm a farmer over in eastern Iowa, diversified family livestock operation. So I get all the concerns that come with, you know, when we're going through the land and everything. But one of the future things is what they can use the carbon for. We've all seen this where when you have a low cost product, people figure out how to make money with it. And we're starting to see that in the carbon industry where they're looking at putting off ramps on these pipelines because what they want to do is you're going to have companies come in and they're already starting to do this and develop products that are made out of that carbon. And so that, if they're going to do that, let's have them doing this in the local communities uh, where it's more, even more economic benefit. And we're going to see this happening in, in the next few years where you're going to have companies developing products and um, needing some place to go. So let's make sure it's in the Midwest where we can benefit from it. Joe, this might be a stupid question, but if that carbon was pulled off ethanol plant, for example, and it was put into the pipe, and then it was pulled off later to be used to make a product. As you mentioned, somebody sees the opportunity for low-priced carbon. Do we still get the environmental gains for pulling that out of the atmosphere in the market? Yes, we would, because what it would be being used for uh, will sequester that carbon. So we would still get the benefits of it. A few examples right now, they're developing concrete that has carbon in it. Uh, so it sequesters it into the concrete. Uh, Insulation is another one that I've heard. Uh, one that's really starting to catch my ear is there's been several uh, agree MOUs with uh, some of these 
companies are sequestering the carbon uh, for the green hydrogen. It actually takes carbon to produce it, but this is a game changer if they can, it, this green hydrogen could actually be used in combustible engines. So I think that's a great thing we've got to be thinking about. So there's just, there's just a whole world of things that could be used. It would sequester it, so it still helps the environment, and it would also help the communities where we'd have these industries being built. Right. Put a few more dollars in rural America's pocket. That is always a win. Folks, if you're curious about carbon capture and sequestration, learn more at Joe's organization, smartcarbonnetwork.com. Joe Heinrich, Executive Director, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Have a great week. You as well, folks. And tomorrow we'll be rebroadcasting today's episode for the 4th of July. But tune in Wednesday for an update on the markets back here on AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Non-attorney paid spokesperson. Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Does it seem like the bank has no interest in helping you save your home and you feel like you have nowhere to turn for help? Then we have good news for you. Foreclosure Protection Services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. That's all they do. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, it's critical that you call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, Foreclosure Protection Services can help stop the foreclosure process. Call today before it's too late. New laws are in effect and may save your home. Call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org.